Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Ray Tanner. Ray is the head of enterprise learning and leadership development at Farmers Insurance. In her role, she leads learning and culture development initiatives for Farmers 20,000 employees. Ray, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. So take me back, Ray. I know you've been in the learning and development space for a long time. What really sparked your interest in that area? Oh, gosh. Well, without taking it back too, too far, it really started in the early 2000s when I just realized that the world of work was changing and it wasn't stable job tasks anymore. People needed to learn shortcuts quickly. Just as the internet age was getting started, it was an exciting time to be sort of capitalizing on learning in real time and then spreading those tips and new practices to a whole population of people. So that pretty much got me addicted right there. Yeah. So what was your first interaction and involvement in learning and development? What was that like? What what kinds of things were you focused on at that point in time? Well, way back when I was in college and my first job was in retail, you know, they came in with a new computer system for scanning and uh, checking people out and, you know, working inventory. And they said, look, we need people to learn how to teach other people to do it. And that's what really ignited it was I just sort of fell into it. And then from there, I just started to study things like instructional systems design to get people to learn how to do things in a predictable to a great level of quality each time you train people. So that really started my career way back when. And what excites you most about it? I know you've been a a practitioner for a number of years, worked for a number of very successful organizations. What gets you out of bed every morning to just to focus on the areas that you're working on? Today, I think it's what gets a lot of leaders out of bed. It's the fact that we can't predict what's going to happen next. Everything, you talk about that shrinking half-life of information, right? Where everything we know turns over at breakneck speed. And so because that's true, we've got to be more agile and more nimble than ever before in human history. We've just got so many messages coming at us all day long. So what gets me out of bed is understanding how quickly we have to adapt to new market conditions. And of course, for what I do, which is the the field of human performance, how are we going to help people to scale what works quickly? So it's that whole test and learn environment that's so synergistic. So I just find that incredibly exciting. Yeah, I'd love to to dig in a little bit. You talked about the shrinking half-life of information. And I know you wrote about that in a piece recently, or maybe it was a few years back. But can you talk about that? And what are the implications of that? Well, I I think it's just the internet age, you know, here's a quick story for you. I have a friend who is just an incredible world-class percussionist, works on a lot of recordings and so forth. It used to be that between takes, you could rest. You know, there's a lot of upper body strength that goes into being a, a percussionist. And now that it's all digital, you don't even have five seconds 
So the physical strength that's required, the muscle endurance required, the way that you go about your craft is entirely different than it was eight, 10 years ago. The same can be true in all facets of corporate America. It used to be that we had more time to process. We had more time to think and process information that was vital to our jobs. And now with the particular war on talent we've got in this post-COVID remote and hybrid setting, it's even worse because we've lost the lunch hour, we've lost those informal collisions waiting for the elevator. And so we've got to find other ways to make human connections and to make each other smarter. Yeah, just even going back to that half-life of information, I think you said something like 50% of information that you apply on the job is no longer relevant every 18 months. I just was curious just to learn more about that because that's a pretty interesting and provocative statement. You know what? I'm not sure what it is today. What I had quoted you a few years back was based on, I think, a a 2012 statistic, which was that based on the rate of information at that time globally, the shrinking half-life of information measures the space between when information is acquired and when it stops becoming relevant. And so at that time, it said that half of what you'll need to know to be successful in your future, you don't know today in 10 years, and half of what you need to know in 10 years, you don't even know exists today. So it, so that was then. Now I'm sure it's probably twice that severe based on globalization and digitization. So it's probably even more frightening. Yeah, and that, that makes me think about something I work with a lot of clients on around adopting that mindset of, of lifelong learning, how you push people out of their comfort zone in service of growth and development. But what are some of the implications that you see as a practitioner from a learning and development perspective of that shrinking half-life of information, of the fact that the 50% of the knowledge you need, you don't actually have? Like, How do you see that unfold? What are some of the challenges that you're seeing in the marketplace? Well, I think you know we don't recognize that learning is a fundamentally social process. And so the fact that so many of us are now working from home That's the biggest implication, right, is that we can't scaffold on each other's knowledge the way that we used to be able to do if we were in a common boardroom or, you know, all working synchronously. So that's something we've got to be more purposeful and deliberate about doing is literally finding ways to make each other smarter, both in real time and at staggered intervals because of global time zones and because of people's availability and whatnot. So I really think that's the future is in figuring out how can we help people to collaborate and make those neurological connections in order to literally go up the ladder of learning and consciousness so that we can get to better market solutions faster, because that's where that diversity of thought needs to be directed, is how can we take our collective talents and spit and growl and get to a place where we feel like we've got something now that's really going to work for the customer. We've got to make sure that we're planning in time and the right kind of environment where the best ideas can grow. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of people here as as business owners, business leaders are thinking that sounds great in theory, but practically speaking, how do I adapt to the fact that I've got people now that are one, two, three plus time zones away? How do you help organizations in terms of create that scaffolding, make that learning process more social? What What are some practical tips? Yeah. So I think you have to do it by design. You know, Disney, the Disney Institute that does some 
really interesting work for entrepreneurs and other companies sharing their business practices that have made them so profitable and successful. They coined this phrase, culture by design, to avoid culture by default. And I've always loved that because I think that's exactly what today's leaders need to understand is that even in a remote and hybrid environment, you can't let culture just happen because it's going to drift. It's going to go to places that are not going to help you go to market thoughtfully. It's not going to get the best out of all your people. It's not going to capture synergy. So you have to do that in a way that is extremely thoughtful and quite engineered, actually. So back Years ago, when you and I were working together, when we were with Keith Ferrazzi, we did a lot of work around Gallup's research, and they really uncovered some interesting stuff a few years ago about different types of conversations that are statistically proven to drive human performance. And it's not just one method or venue, it's this amalgamation of several at the right cadence that helps people to feel connected to one another, connected to the work, connected to the boss. And I think those are where the practical tips are. I think it's understanding that people are most engaged when they feel like there's this synergistic pinging that happens across different messaging and communication platforms. So my most practical advice for today's business leaders working in a distributed setting in the post-COVID world would be if you're not engaging your people wholly. That doesn't mean nattering at them and bugging them all day long. It just means if you're not reaching out at different intervals to engage them meaningfully and with trust and psychological safety, you might just lose them because you've got to communicate in a way that's going to create and sustain meaning in the work. I think that's a big thing that we've learned through COVID is that people are now looking at all of these misfortunes and deaths and residual illnesses that have happened from this pandemic. People are now reassessing what they want out of their lives and their careers. And I think to some extent, we're seeing in the data that it's driving the great resignation. So anyone who's dependent on talent to get their market needs met in the organizations they're running and owning they really have to spend more time figuring out how am I going to engage my people in a meaningful way and at the right cadence for them, not just me. Interesting is actually was at a CEO offsite this past weekend and in two macroeconomists were saying in the past, it was about jobs, jobs, jobs. Now it's about workers, workers, workers. So just seeing a, a fundamental shift with just potentially um, long-term unemployment at very low levels. And now it's about the people. I mean, I guess it's always been around the, about the people, but especially so now. Well, the balance of power has shifted. And so now what we're seeing is organizations recognizing, you know, what we've always said we believed in corporate America, which is people are our greatest asset. I think now we're recognizing, oh gosh, <laughs> now that we're seeing droves of talented people saying, you know what, I don't even have a new job lined up, but I'm going to leave anyway. You know, we're seeing a lot of that. And we're seeing a lot of people saying, you know what, I didn't have the courage to hang out a shingle, but this two-year pandemic and the odyssey that surrounded it, you know, has me feeling like I'm just going to go try this because life's too short not to. So that is, so it's really unprecedented, the, the level of courage that the American worker has, potentially even globally, around finding ways to believe in your own talent, take some risks, and find ever more flexible ways to get your talent out there and do the kind of work that gets you up in the morning. 
it's interesting. One of the things you mentioned before about culture by design versus culture by default. It also makes me think about just the elevation of the CHRO role truly being at the strategic table. Obviously, we've seen that from a chief marketing officer perspective. The CTO had been elevated, but makes me think about how the you know heads of HR, heads of learning and development, et cetera, are now at the table. Like, Who are the people that are involved in an organization or who should be thinking about culture just in terms of how you make it so it's culture by design? Well, the short answer is everybody. Every single leader, you know, leaders in any organization, they have the keys to the kingdom from a culture perspective, right? Because they're in charge of the system. That said, you know, a lot of people don't really differentiate between what is culture and what is climate. The easiest definition of of culture is it's the unwritten rule book for the way we do things around here. That's what's triggered by the organization's beliefs and values. And it really is the rule book for behavior. Climate, on the other hand, you know, is driven to a great extent by culture, and it describes what it feels like to work here, and it's really the mood that surrounds us. So to me, you know, semantics, right? Why do we even have to care about the difference between these two things? Well, in my view, there is a practical reason to differentiate and to do something about it. Culture is like trying to teach that elephants to dance. You know, it's it's big, it's it's a little bumbling, it's not that nimble. It takes years to evolve an organization's culture. But climate, if you know some of these really amazing, very sparkly personalities that can change the vibe in a room the minute they walk in, the same is true in the workforce. There are people, there are systems, there are actions. There's furniture now, just go to Steelcase, you know, that will literally change the mood and guide behavior based on how it's been designed. So climate's important because it does happen quickly. It's like a light switch that you can flip and improve immediately. And it happens at the local level. So I would say for leaders, yeah, you need to care about culture because that's what causes your talent to stay to outperform, to apply discretionary effort. It's going to help you get 100 bucks out of every $10 bill for, t- for talent if you do it well and if you involve them in it and you let them help define who do we want to be. Climate, it's a nuance, but we don't always know what the climate feels like because we have a different experience from where we sit as leaders than our people do. So I think it's really important to continuously assess the climate and how people are feeling about their jobs and creating enough safety for people to be honest and tell you exactly what it's feeling like in a given work week, because it does change day over day, week over week. But it's important that we influence the climate to as positive an environment as possible if we hope to keep our people. Yeah, it's a really interesting distinction between culture and climate, obviously, the time horizon one, but just also just the unwritten rules versus what it actually feels like. So obviously you mentioned some examples of people, systems, steel case furniture, obviously some great products there, but practically speaking, how do you go about both measuring the climate of a team and organization, but also how do you move the needle on the climate? Obviously you can bring someone in that can just electrify a team, but what are some things you could do from an institutional perspective to really move the needle from a climate perspective? What a wonderful question. And, and actually, you know, I could spend the rest of the day talking about that because it's just it's one of my favorite subjects. You know, years ago, there was a social sciences researcher at Harvard named Amy Edmondson, and she coined the phrase 
psychological safety. She was the first one to do so. And she really kind of discovered it by accident in studying error rates in hospitals, I believe. And basically what she found was that certain hospitals would outperform with incredibly better survivability rates than other hospitals. And it was perplexing because both of them had varying levels of skill, varying levels of knowledge, both made mistakes, both had constraints. But when she really dug in to look at the real difference between the outperforming staffs and the underperforming staffs, she found that the biggest issue, and of course I'm shrinking and uh, not doing justice to her body of work, but really she found that when a mistake was made, how people behaved really mattered. So in the hospitals where people were afraid they'd get yelled at, afraid they would lose their job, afraid that they'd get a dressing down or publicly humiliated, they tended to bury the mistake, either trying to quietly fix it themselves or try to you know go through some other subversive way of getting their needs met. But in the hospitals where people felt okay and open, like it's okay to be at a learning curve. And for the sake of the patient, it's highly important for us all to rally around a mistake so that we can all learn from it in real time. The hospitals that did that as a practice, obviously, had better survivability rates. So she was the first one to extrapolate that. That work has continued to evolve in the last decade and a half. In fact, there's an author named um, Timothy Clark, who wrote a really great practical book called The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. So he took it in a really practical place for leaders. And he basically said that, look, there are four building block steps. And when it comes to leader behavior, it makes it so easy to follow. The first step is to make sure that everybody on a leader's team feels like they're a bona fide member of that team and not nibbling along the outside of it. That's what they call inclusion safety. Then that second rung is learner safety. It's that ability to not be afraid of looking stupid. It's having the belief that you're not going to get corrected harshly or be really heavily judged for making a non-critical mistake. Leaders can really model this by encouraging a test and learn environment and learning by doing. And really, things like failure boards even really help to improve psychological safety, to let people know that, look, this blameworthy failure, which is like going to an important meeting without having prepped, we're not going to celebrate that. (laughs) But if someone takes a, a calculated risk you know, attacks all knowable information, really does the best work and learns a ton and gets super close, but doesn't quite make it, that might be a praiseworthy failure. So really being able to discern the difference and communicate that to your teams, I would say that's one of the best things on a practical level that leaders can do. Contributor safety would be that third rung in the four steps of psychological safety, which is that ability to let people be who they are. So that's the celebrating differences piece. It's the diversity piece to the inclusion safety. It sort of counterbalances so that you can be unapologetically you and feel like you're trusted to be empowered to do the work. And it's a lot of that owning your work and feeling like you don't have to hold up everything you do and say, is this it, boss? (laughs) And then that last one, and probably the, the step that matters the most 
is challenger safety. And that's that ability to be super honest with the boss, even if that person is feeling a little inhibited or they have to give you some unwelcome information or feedback. It really empowers people to say what they're thinking or what the room is thinking and not fearing negative consequences. Yeah, such a fascinating four steps. And if you think about it through those lenses you mentioned, just the first, the the most basic is in terms of everyone feels included and, and valued. And then the idea of learning and then contributing and then challenging. You think about so many companies that have gone off the rails. I mean, you could name, you know, a litany of the of the examples in the last five to ten years, sadly, but just how important that is. And and people think about it more through the lens, at least the way I thought about it typically was more about having people feel safe to contribute. But now it's like taking that next step and actually challenging, of course, in a respectful way, especially if you're talking about your boss or some superiors in the organization, but just how important that is just for the sustainability of our businesses and our teams. I totally agree. And, you know, I think that whole joiner safety, you know, or inclusion safety, everybody listening to this podcast and me included would probably say, well, of course, you know, of course I'm an inclusive leader. I really don't think anyone who's not an inclusive leader would necessarily even self-perceive that they're exclusionary in some level or operating from some level of bias. When they talk about those unconscious associations, there's an old joke that says, your unconscious associations as a leader are only unconscious to you. (laughs) The rest of us can see it. So I think on a practical level, really working with your new talent. There's so much turnover going on in the world of work these days that we're constantly onboarding. And I think very few industries and organizations are not experiencing high turnover attrition and and having to uh, onboard and train up new people on a continuous basis. So really making sure that those new joiners feel like you're one of us now, just by nature of the fact that you work here, And then just making sure that there's this thing that that I read about, uh, the junk theory of superiority that happens in companies. Isn't that a great title? Junk theory of superiority. What it means is it's these subtle little cues that one person has just a little more status than someone else. I drive that much better of a car, or I have that much more hierarchical power, or I'm in this group, or I lead that task force, or I'm from this part of the country, or live in this neighborhood, whatever it is, more of that subconscious willful bias has you relating to other people subconsciously as if they're lesser than. And so whatever a leader can do to remove that harmful bias and make sure that there is a an overarching banner of belonging under which we all belong because we're dedicated to the same customers. We're dedicated to the same mission. The more leaders can punch that authentically in all their messaging, I think the the more inclusive it'll feel despite what makes us different. Yeah. I always think even at the most basic level, the words we choose in, in substituting I for we, it's just such a it's interesting to see leaders talk about, you know, my customers, my products, like, wait a second, aren't there, you know, tens, hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees that actually are part of that. So it's interesting just how just some of that more inclusive language can go a long way towards that. One thing I want to just make a connection to, obviously, I wanted to ask you about because you have a, a great vantage point just in terms of looking across 
industries and so forth is this whole new normal, next normal, flexible first, work from home, hybrid, in office, et cetera. How does this concept of psychological safety connect back to just this new way, this new modality of working? Well, I think we've kind of been talking about that in that we're still having meetings, but those meetings are happening by Zoom or WebEx. So, you know, we talk about Zoom fatigue and so forth. Going back to the telephone every now and then so that you can do walking meetings and really connect voice to voice in your one-on-ones, making sure that those one-on-ones don't drop between leaders and their team members, but also between and across team members. Because remember, we've lost that lunch hour. We're not sitting at a cafeteria table together the way perhaps we once did. We're not running into each other, walking to the parking lot together at the end of the day. We're all of these subtle mannerisms and ways of communicating can flourish and create intimacy and rapport. So we have to do it in a very intentional way. So I think it's asking your team members to do one-on-ones with one another. I think that's a real high return practice. I think it's jumping onto some of your messaging platforms and just saying good morning or just reaching out and saying, hey, you mentioned your favorite, you know, streaming show was this. I caught it last night. Super cool. It's just finding all of those little things that are seemingly insignificant. But what it does is it reaches out across the bandwidth and draws people into the organization's cultural orbit. So I just think it's really important to not just do the the WebEx or Zoom meetings, make sure that you're still communicating by text, by Slack, by Microsoft or WebEx teams, just really being well-rounded, not in a way that pesters, but in a way that engages. Yeah, it's like, making time to make it personal. The other thing I think about is that because we have all these tools, we tend to get, I don't know if lazy is the right word, but because they're so easy to use, we just respond quickly without thinking about it versus if you're in front of someone, you may take some more time to think about your body language and posture and your tone, but we need to really think about that as we use these different mediums to connecting and engage with folks. Back when we were working with Keith Ferrazzi, And just for anybody who doesn't know, Darren and I met in, was it 2012? So a while while back now. But Keith Ferrazzi was uh, an absolute game changer for me as a boss and as an organization. I, I relearned my profession working with Keith. And that idea of being highly relational and not taking candor and camaraderie for granted as something that would naturally evolve without effort, that completely changed the way that I lead. And so now more than ever, I think it's extremely important to do these personal and professional check-ins. And there's some discipline around it. You know, Keith taught us to start out a meeting very briskly and just talk about for one minute, doesn't have to take a ton of time, what's top of mind outside of work today. And it's amazing how it rewires the brain chemistry to allow empathy to come into the virtual meeting environment. And then asking people, what is top of mind at work in general this week? And then people don't just talk about today's myopic agenda. They can talk much more generally about what they're facing at work and outside of work. And then separately outside the meeting, 
that's when the real camaraderie and intimacy at peer level comes out because then they can say, by the way, is your dog okay? You know, or does Timmy still have a cold? Whatever, whatever it is that causes someone to need legitimate support, you can get it. But these are practices that as leaders, we have to compensate for what we now no longer have in the remote environment. Yeah, I mean, those things were always important. They're just extra important now because we tend to jump in and have transactional conversations, whether it's a project update or even a collaboration session. We don't take that time to slow down and actually connect on a real humanistic level. It's so true. And it's nuance, right? I'm continuously asked by leaders. So, you know, what, what is it that we have to start doing in the remote and hybrid environment in order to be effective as, as organizational leaders? I think you just said it really well, Darren, you know, it's all the same stuff. You just have to adapt it in some little nuanced ways that is going to work for the context you find yourselves in now. Which is hard, right? You know, most people, it's like they don't want to take the extra effort, a step back, if you will, to actually contextualize or to think about those nuances. But but I always tell people, gosh, you know, maybe in the very short run, it's going to take you a few extra seconds or minutes, but not creating that conflict, taking that time to be more intentional and more personal and relatable to people, it just goes a long way towards building relationships, building higher levels of engagement and trust and psychological safety, as you mentioned before. Well, and the alternative, I've got as much need to be reminded and bolstered as any other leader, particularly because I'm high focus and I'm an introvert. So it's very easy for me to be in head down mode and sort of forget that my number one job is to make sure that the team is productive and engaged and happy and, you know, having the kind of impact on the organization that the company is counting on. That said, inertia is a really powerful force. So if you're used to operating in a certain way, you've got to apply so much more time and effort to change your behavioral trajectory. So I think it's understanding that and having different reminders for yourself because while we're not commuting and we're not picking up dry cleaning and we're not, you know, doing the kind of travel we once did in this country, we still have unbelievably high levels of burnout. And that's because the although we're not as physically active as we were when we were running around the, the nation, we are more cognitively exhausted than ever before. And there's lots of reasons for that, you know, based on the way the brain processes information, even in a sedentary video-based environment, we are filling the lunch hour commute times with more meetings. And so that lack of processing and sense-making is causing people to burn out and have true reduction in cognition and productivity. So helping your people to rest, helping your people to take PTO inviting your people to knock off early from time to time. These are all things that are going to help to build goodwill. Frankly, you'll get more out of people than if you, you know, really require your exams to put in a very regimented schedule. Yeah. Burnout is definitely a real thing. Everything's bigger, stronger, faster. And that's obviously in a youth sports perspective, learning things earlier, being more balanced, uh, doing things earlier. Same thing with work is just we're constantly being taxed to constantly look for hacks and try to find the ways we can be the best that we can be. And then obviously in a virtual environment, just as you mentioned, filling lunch hours with meetings or work, you know, versus alternatives like taking time for exercise or getting out and having a conversation with a friend or family member. But what are some practical things, 
and you give some examples, but anything specific high return best practices, as you will, in terms of encouraging your teams to take that time and not just saying it and just saying it, but not really meaning it, you know, it's like, oh yeah, knock off early. Well, yeah, hint, hint. But that also means coming back online early too, right? So like, what are some practical tips you have based on your experience? I can tell you what's worked recently for me. It's how you frame up expectations and of course, how you personally behave Uh, because it's what you say and people are going to follow the real deal based on what you do. So for example, if you're returning emails and you're forwarding things early, early in the morning, late, late at night or on the weekends, you're sending a very clear signal that I expect you to work as the pace of work requires, as opposed to saying, nope, I've reached my personal maximum. It's my family's time now. I'm going to leave the office and put some distance between me and the work in order to ensure that I'm optimally well and balanced. So I think leading by example just becomes really, really important. Even putting in your signature line, note, replies on evenings and weekends are not expected. The other thing that you can do is really have a conversation in your one-on-ones. In fact, it's probably the highest return practice any of us leading uh, remote and hybrid teams can do, which is to have really candid and authentic, how are you doing really conversations with each of your team members, being able to say, how are you doing? Some are still homeschooling. Some folks are having to dash between meetings to pick up and drop off their kids and whatnot. And so I let my team members know you've got 24 hours as exempt employees to get the the work done. As long as you're communicative and we know when you're online and when you're not so that we know what to expect from you, you've got incredible flexibility based on the nature of the work we do. I know obviously not all functions have that level of flexibility, but I think when you really make it okay for people to parse out their time and work when they have the most energy, my team, for example, knows that I get up very early. My brain is on fire. I like to do the deep thinking work early before the meetings and phones and all those things start going off. And then I don't tend to do as well late. My brain is tired. I don't make the best decisions. So they know that. And I know what is true for them. So I think that's the best thing that leaders can do today is it goes back to what we've always known. Get to know your talent, get to know their motivations, how they want to be recognized. Ask them, when was the last time you left work feeling like you could fly? And what went on on that day? And how can we get you doing even that much more of it? You know, those kinds of conversations are still highly effective and potentially more important now that we're not getting visual and behavioral cues in the live environment. What a great coaching question, by the way. When was the last time you felt like you could fly when leaving work? So that's a great question. Well, what it says, you know, again, we know from our friends at Gallup, what that usually implies is that someone has been working in their strengths zone, right? They've reached a state of flow. They've lost track of time. They got that heady feeling, ginger ale in the brain in a good way that, you know, they've been using multiple talents to get something done. And, uh, you know, we can all appreciate that. Whatever your go-to passion is, whether it's working on a vintage engine or preparing a gourmet meal or painting a house. There are activities that we get lost in. 
because we just enjoy them so much and they use so much of our whole brain thinking that we sometimes will wake up and realize, man, I've been at this for eight hours. That's when you know, you know, you are fully engaged in a given activity. Wouldn't it be nice if as leaders, we could get into a place where all of our employees felt so wholly engaged that time really flew and they had tons of discretionary energy at the end of the day left to do really great flourishing things, but also be ever more available for themselves and their families. Yeah. I mean, I love that question because it obviously, it, it creates something aspirational too of when you felt like you could fly. So, you know, maybe you're doing that 2% of the time to start, but how can you do it? So it's 5%, 10%, 20%, maybe a hundred percent is not totally realistic. Obviously that gets back to the uh, Gallup point of view about using your talents, using your strengths and doing the work that you do. But what a fantastic question to ask and to help people to grow and develop into that. So they really are flying most of the time or at least part of the time. And just wrapping it back into the inclusion and psychological safety discussion. Imagine in the first couple of one-on-ones after you've onboarded a new employee, asking questions like, how do you like to be recognized? Like really, really think of the last time you were really moved by some recognition. What was it and what was so touching about it? And even things like what's one thing that I could do as your manager that would make you more excited to come to work every day? I can't imagine an employee not feeling like a full-scale partner in the face of a question like that. Absolutely. And then it's interesting how different people can respond to those questions too. You know, some people need outward recognition in meetings. They need those kudos. Some people don't. They're more intrinsically motivated. As an example, different people have different communications preferences. So it's, it's really powerful to, to see how different we all are just from a, just a innate personality perspective. It's so true. Years ago, there was a really great financial leader that we wanted to recognize. He'd had a milestone anniversary and had created some really uncommon financial results. And so we had a cake and balloons and noisemakers and all these things. And we all go walking down the office and burst into his office. We almost gave the man a heart attack. He was mortified. If we'd given it five minutes worth of thought, we would have recognized this person is an introvert. He wants us to make it private, make it personal. And on the basis of just the look on his face, I recognized early in my career, okay, I'm not doing this again. I'm going to ask people how they want to be recognized. Some people love a big goodbye party when they're ready to move on from the organization. Some of them just want to thank a few people and slip out, you know, and we have to honor everyone's individuality. Great story and great example. I'd love to switch gears just as a last question for you. Like, what do you see looking forward from a learning and development perspective? Obviously, we've talked about a lot of things, how they've shifted now. We looked into the past, but what do you see moving forward? What are we going to carry from this pandemic timeframe? Obviously, much of which we will, some of which hopefully we'll, we'll be able to disregard. But what do you see moving forward over the next five, 10 years from a learning and development perspective? It's a perfect way to conclude, but it's also a whole new beginning. <laughs> so I'll try to be succinct on that. I, I actually think that the learning and development profession will not exist as we know it in the coming years. I think what we are absolutely headed toward is the capability revolution. And it started off with uh, Degreed and some other really prolific companies recognizing 
that what large organizations and leaders of large groups of leaders, what we really need is some seamless integration of being able to understand the skills, experiences, and fundamental capabilities that your talent brings, and then to do an inventory of what is needed, because not all skills are of the same value. Some are much more strategically relevant than others. So being able to say, here's what I've got for talent, here's what I need for talent, here's the gap, and to have an AI-driven skills platform that not only measures where you're talent-rich and where you need to shore up certain talents, We've already got that, but organizations are just learning how to use that insight strategically in order to source talent, develop talent, promote talent, et cetera, and to also look at the diversity of skill and capability in different ways than we are today. So I think these organizations that are understanding that we're not all going to be W-2, We really know that coming out of COVID, we're looking at the number of freelancers globally. And so organizations like Upwork, Fiverr, any organization that knows how to buy, build, bridge, and broker. So there are all these different ways to get and aim talent. And so I think that's going to be an increasingly important part of our future uh, in organizational life and for leaders. It's not going to be full-time employees co-located. It's going to be very strategic. So I, I can't wait to be part of it. I'd like to spend the rest of my career helping people to develop the capabilities necessary for the kind of future they want to have because it's so visible and within reach now. We don't have to guess anymore. Exciting future for sure. Well, Ray, thanks so much. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy. Uh, really fun catching up and just hearing your perspective and insights. Really do appreciate it. Darren, thank you so much. It's just it's great to spend a little bit more time with you. I really miss working with you every day. But when we get to have conversations like this, it feels like the old days. So thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks and see you all in the next episode.